Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Welcome to the show. We are going to be talking about whether or not another Walkerton could be on the way today. This is a story that came out late last week, but now we've had a little time to digest it. And certainly the community in and around Walkerton has had a chance to talk about some things that they'd rather not remember. People who have had to have organ transplants. People who went through hell because something wasn't monitored correctly. Basically, they don't want this to happen to their community again, and they don't want to see it happen to anyone else's community. So what does Bill 66 have to do with all this? Well, we'll talk about that in a half hour from now. Graham Larkin will join us from Vision Zero. We'll be talking about the Ottawa OC Transpo bus crash. The investigation is far from over. This is going to take a very long time, but there are more details coming out. And Vision Zero does a good job keeping their eye on transportation all over the place. And they will give us some thoughts on what they have seen so far in the coverage of this story. We're also going to go back to something that Devin Peacock was talking about on the Craig Needles show today. Devin was in for Craig, and he was looking at a new app. And the app basically would freeze a child's phone if you set it up this way. If a parent texted them and they didn't respond within a certain amount of time. So their phone would not be able to be used until they got back to their parents. Makes a lot of sense. But if you go looking at the way that things are operating now, I'm not even sure you need that because there are so many different ways to follow up on your kids. We'll outline that, but I have an almost bigger question from all of this. And it goes back to an email that we got last week from Donna Jean when we were talking basically about technology, about phone communication. And I had made mention of the fact that I'm lucky. I have teenagers in the house, so you know I can pick up on whatever it is they're using. I am afraid for the day when they're gone, and they can't help me out with that. But I still think that you have to keep up with technology somehow. If you choose not to have a computer, if you choose not to stare into screens, I envy you. Because the rest of the world can't seem to stay away from it. And I think that's great if you're able to live life, but the moment that you go looking for something and you can't do it because that is some form of technology that you either don't have or haven't learned to use, you're leaving yourself behind. And I don't think that's the fault of whoever has put whatever it is you're trying to use onto a different platform that you can't use. I put the fault on you because you haven't stayed up. We wear shoes now because they're more comfortable, because they protect our feet, because they help us to walk around. Humans didn't always wear shoes. You know, we developed grocery stores because that is a more effective way to go and get our food than to walk out into the forest with a bow and arrow or a gun and shoot at a rabbit. Those are things that we've evolved, and I really believe that That's one of those keys. Donna Jean had said, geez, Mike, I hope you never get old and things change so rapidly with new technology that you're just not able to grasp all the things you need to with that technology, but are told this is the way it's done now. Suck it up or get someone to do it for you. This is what our older seniors are facing. Yes, some of the over 75-year-olds are able to grasp computers, but some of them can barely master Facebook and email. God love them. They are trying. 
And I think that that merits some conversation later on on the show. So I can't get, I can't wait to get to that. We're also going to talk about, speaking of technology, instead of going to the library and checking out a book, getting an ebook, and the fact that some companies, some publishers, are not making every book that they have in their catalog available. Wait a minute. What do you mean not available? Well, not available to libraries. You can check out ebooks at a library, but wait, wait, wait. You're not spending money to buy the book. So is that what's going on here? Are they trying to be sneaky and force people into doing that? You look at libraries for a second. In our capitalistic way of thinking, they go completely away from it. I think we need to give libraries some credit for being able to survive all of the stuff that goes on and all the push to, no, no, we have to drag every dime out of everybody that we can. Libraries are still there. They will order in a book. You don't have to go to a bookstore. You don't have to go online and purchase a book. You can actually go to the library and say, yeah, I've been thinking about wanting to read this. And they'll say, well, we don't have that in, but we can get it in. And they'll order it and you can check it out. And it's free. And somehow we don't take enough advantage of this. So that's something that is coming up in 10 minutes. I want to pass on something to anyone who was at Budweiser Gardens on Friday night from London Knights players. A great big thank you. The the noise that was created on Friday night. I don't know if you've heard anything about this story yet. And if you aren't a Knights fan, maybe you haven't. It was a pretty wild weekend for the London Knights. They played the hottest team in the OHL on Friday. And then they played the top team in the standings 17 and a half hours later, basically 14 hours later, I guess. And then they had to go on the road yesterday. So it was not an easy weekend. They won every game. They beat Saginaw 4-1. They beat Ottawa 5-3. And then they went to Kitchener and won yesterday. So it was an incredible weekend. But you have no idea, if you were at the game on Friday, how much you helped How much you gave a boost, just the energy that existed in the crowd that goes back to what everybody in attendance would call a missed penalty call. I don't like listening to my own voice, so I'm not going to listen to this next part, but I want to take you back to show you just how loud it was. Here is the reaction of the crowd as a penalty was being called on Nathan Dunkley of the London Knights, who had been all tangled up in behind the play with Riley Webb of the Saginaw Spirit. Dunkley is all tangled up in behind the play with Webb. Fans want a penalty, and now we do have a penalty, but it's going to Dunkley. Jammed up in the right corner of the London end, and the whistle sounds. It'll be the Spirit to the man advantage next. So that was just the the whole play as it developed. Here is play getting back underway. I haven't heard the fans boo like this <laughs> no, in Budweiser Gardens. Maybe ever. No, that they didn't like that call, and it was everybody in the house saw it. That went on for over two minutes. Anytime Saginaw would touch the puck, anytime a referee seemed to come into view, there were boos. Now, here's the story. In behind it, you've got a developmental league in junior hockey. So you've got young officials along with young players. So you have a guy who hadn't officiated very many OHL games, and he ended up making the penalty call. Used to play in the league, so he has sympathy for the players and what was going on, but he used to play in the league, 
and elected to call one penalty instead of two, or elected to call the London Knight player instead of the Saginaw Spirit player, and booze, the energy in that place. I've never heard it like that. And the players, they fed off that. And just the support that you get from the team, and uh, and that, that kind of pushed them through the weekend. So they wanted to give out a great big thank you as to... What the fans did on Friday night at Budweiser Gardens. Lots to come on the show today. Here's a question to think about. We're heading into some colder times. We're also heading into some cheaper times to travel. So a number of people will be able to find their way out on vacations around now. Should you be allowed to drink when you fly? I mean, this is just a given. A lot of people will spend time before they step on a plane having a few drinks to calm their nerves, right? Flying still makes a lot of people nervous, even though you have, I think it's one in 11 million in the way of a chance of being involved in something bad. One in 11 million. It is still one of the safest ways, if not the safest way, to travel, other than covering yourself in bubble wrap and, you know, tiptoeing down the street. That would probably be a little safer. But... They're talking about this now because on a recent Delta Airlines flight, the plane was going from Newark to Minneapolis. A player, or uh, sorry, a passenger had consumed five mini bottles of vodka. Just dun, 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 dun. And by the time the plane landed, well, you had all kinds of people who were complaining about this person. They were drunk. They were belligerent. They were having all kinds of trouble. And if you look at at numbers, a marketing agency in Florida, look this up, more than 8 in 10 passengers, so over 8 out of 10, more than 8 in 10 passengers say they have consumed alcohol as they were waiting at the airport, and once they're in the air, that number actually goes up to 9 out of 10. Millennials, they are 10% more likely to be intoxicated on a flight than older passengers. And it may not be because they are afraid to fly. So it has raised the issue, should we change some of the rules so that you can't consume alcohol as easily on a plane? If we get a few more incidents like this, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. They'll outlaw it or it'll be a one-drink minimum or a two-drink minimum because up until now, thanks to guys like Dirk Bentley, it's almost like it's promoted. I'm getting drunk on a plane. He had to put that in, didn't he? Buying drinks for everybody but the pilot. It's a party. He had to put that in. People would have been really angry. But people were really angry on this flight from Newark to Minneapolis. And normally, people who are on a flight out of Newark are really happy. Because they're leaving Newark. Ever been to Newark? Then don't go. You don't need to go to Newark. Trust me. We are going to go to break. Up next, we'll talk about whether or not publishers are making it too tough on people to check out ebooks from the library as maybe a push to try and get more money out of them. Well, you know, if you were going to check it out of the library, I'm not making as much as if you were to pay $15.99 online. That's next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you are able to get away in the next couple of months, take advantage of some of those deals out there. You're probably bringing along a book or your e-reader. That e-readers for a long, long time. They're not bad. You bring along a lot of books. 
I left mine in a hot car one time. I don't have an e-reader anymore. But I'll get one again. And with e-readers comes the need to get e-books. You can buy them. You can also get e-books from the library. And yet there is an issue that is being raised because more and more people go to a library and say, hey, I want to check out this book. Okay, well, we have that. Yeah, but can I get it? In, in ebook form? No. How come? Because the publisher won't make it available that way. Why not? Well, let's find out. Joining us right now is the Toronto Public Library's Director of Collections and Membership Services, Susan Caron. Susan, how are things on this Monday? It's very good, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thanks for doing this, because I'm fascinated to know what sorts of issues you're running into when people come in and say, I'd like this as an ebook," and you have to say, uh, the publisher just doesn't make it available that way. Well, it's true of e-books, but it's actually even more true of e-audiobooks, and e-audiobooks are the fastest-growing format in library borrowing, and also in commercial publishing. They've been doubling every year for publishers, and our um, library's growth has been about 24% in the last couple of years, 86% for the six largest libraries in, in Canada. So so e-audiobook use is huge, and that's where we're really having a problem in accessing titles. So maybe you could outline the issues that you're running into and and what you know about it? The primary issues are that publishers, and I should start by saying we are talking about the five multinational publishers. That's Hachette, Macmillan, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, not independent Canadian publishers. We have great relationships with them, so we are talking about multinationals who, of course, publish most books. So they're the ones we're having the problem with. So what's happening is either they are selling the rights to their books to audible.ca or audible.com, which is an audiobook subscription service, which of course you have to pay for, and then they're unavailable to libraries. Or the Canadian branch of the multinational is only selling the rights to Canadian books to their U.S. branch. And and we have many cases where Canadian libraries can't buy Canadian titles, but U.S. libraries can. So that is equally frustrating. So the end result is that our customers do not have access to this material. Okay, so in doing that, then you have users of the library coming in saying, could I check this out? And the answer has to be no. Is this a financial thing or is this just a rules thing? It's, we have been talking to publishers for a number of years, first about ebooks and now about e-audiobooks. American libraries have the same issues, and we have really not gotten very far, which is why we're, we're launching this campaign, because we want, we want the customers who are really being impacted by this to contact through social media those publishers and ask them what's happening. We have never got a clear answer to this issue, and as well as not having access to the titles, we're also paying a lot of money for these titles. So maybe two or three times what we would pay for an audiobook on CD, we're paying $150, $200 for an e-audiobook. 
So it's, uh, it's very frustrating for us, and it really goes against the whole mission of libraries, which is to provide equal and universal access to information. And so this is really frustrating. It's restricting access to materials. It's jeopardizing this mission. And we're particularly concerned with e-audio books because as well as people who just find they're a great way of bringing reading into their life when they're doing other things, like they're the best multitasking format in the world. So they're allowing people who don't have time to read to actually start reading. But they're also... They're also something that are, they're well used by newcomers, they're well used by uh, children and teen reluctant readers, seniors. So it's, it's very frustrating because these are people who may not for financial reasons or may just not want to have a subscription to Audible. So um, they can't get this material through the library. Hmm. We're talking with Susan Caron, Toronto Public Library's Director of Collections and Membership Services, because there is a push for people to get involved and speak their mind about this now that this has become well known. You do have a hashtag, which is e-content for libraries that people can use. What else could people help out with? Well, we want them to continue to use libraries. If you're not using libraries already, please start using libraries because they're wonderful sources of material. Even though we are having issues with access, we still have huge collections of wonderful titles that people can borrow. So I really encourage people as well as going to that hashtag, going to social media, talking to the publishers. I also encourage them to keep or start using their libraries. Susan, thank you so much for outlining the issue. I hope that this works out okay. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Susan Caron. So if you missed it, here's the issue. Libraries lend books, lend movies. You know, if you need something on a CD, they still have that. But e-books and e-audiobooks are two items that they're having trouble getting. And as Susan outlined, they can pay three times as much as what it would normally cost, sometimes even more, to get something like this. Or uh, one of the big five publishers, and Susan was careful to say, hey, any of the independent publishers, I don't have any issues with them. It's the big five publishers. Because you have services now like audible.ca or audible.com, which if you have Spotify or you use Apple Music or whatever music subscription service you subscribe to, you know, think of it as a Netflix for audiobooks and ebooks. So if you have that, then you get access to them. The publishers, the big five publishers, are giving the rights to those books to audible.ca, audible.com, because they get money in return. And they're not making them available to libraries. Libraries have always been free. Brings up the question, where is the role of the library? I mean, I... I don't know going forward. Like I said at the beginning, I'm really, really impressed at how cities and how libraries themselves have kept themselves going. And if you go in to a library, you realize there are people there all the time. You don't walk in and say, ah, there's nobody here. People are making use of the library all the time, whether it is to use the computers that they have there. I think they need to go nowhere. Libraries should always be a part of our community, and they found ways to service everybody 
in all of the the different developments that have have kind of come up. I mean, you know, don't have internet at home? Come to the library. Uh, if it's not a book you're looking for, well, yeah, we'll bring in movies. We'll bring in TV shows. You can take those out on loan. And now we're looking at ebooks and audiobooks. But you're going to have the big companies saying, no, no, we'd rather give them to a subscription service. And it's $14.95 a month. So you've got your Netflix for $10 a month. What's Amazon Prime? Is that like 10 bucks a month, a little bit more than that? You've got Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you're using. That's another 10 bucks a month. And now, well, to use the equivalent of a library, well, that's another 10 bucks a month. Is that fair? Does it lump into the same thing? Are they all the same category? Um, I have trouble saying definitively, no, libraries do not belong in that same thing, or the the lending of books or the checking out of books or e-audio books, but we still need libraries for what they provide to our communities. So something to talk about. Bang this one around the dinner table. We'll probably bring it up again on the show. My name is Mike Stubbs. We'll take a break. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We don't want a repeat of May 17th, 2000 or anything that came after that. That was the day that the first symptoms of what would become the E. coli contamination in Walkerton were first reported. And unfortunately, that wasn't the day that people in Walkerton were told, stop drinking the water, stop using the water. There have been so many heart-wrenching stories, so many long-lasting effects. So why are we discussing this again? Well, it's not the anniversary of the Walkerton tragedy, but there is reason to be talking about this again. And it's because that in December, the provincial government introduced something called Bill 66. What's Bill 66? Well, it's the Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act, and it takes into account 12 ministries and looks at ways to cut regulations and cut so-called red tape. So back in December, when this was first announced, let's face it, we're right before the holidays. You don't go thinking, hmm, what kind of repercussions could this have? But now it's been a little while. People have been able to think. People have been able to talk. And we're getting more answers. It's kind of like when the legislation was changed for drinking and driving. And what police now have the ability to do. We talked so much about that last week. Well, that was introduced in December, but the little loopholes or other smaller items that are going to have great impact aren't necessarily either discovered or completely understood right away. But when they are, they sure make for important discussion. And that's what we have right here and right now. Joining us is Bruce Davidson from Concerned Walkerton Citizens. And Bruce has been doing a job for 18 years now and has been talking about things like Bill 66 and other things that have come up along the way. Bruce, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, or good afternoon, I should say. Yeah, it's it's one of those days that flies by. It's nice Mm. when it's a Monday and it flies by, right? That's right. Bruce, let's talk about... 
what exactly Bill 66 concerns you about? Well, I think what we see here is the government presenting the people of Ontario and municipalities with a false choice, where they're basically saying, you know, this environmental protection stuff is getting in the way of uh, opening businesses. And I would say that we need to view the environment and the economy as partners, not as competitors. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think if we want to look at, and I, I hope everyone's in agreement, what we want is sustainable communities. And a sustainable community has to have a good economy, but we can't be putting the people in those communities at risk. And what this bill is suggesting is that we negate 11 years of source protection mapping that we've done in this province, that we look at the threats that we have listed to our drinking water. We know exactly where the water is. We know exactly where we're taking it and what the threats are. That we put all that on the sidelines and say, you know what, if you can come to a community and open 50 jobs, go for it. And I think that that's really a dangerous path to go down. Because with all of our communities and the mapping, I'll give you an example of the Great Bruce region, and it's similar across the province. It's about 1.5% of the land that are in our source protection zones that we are really, really highly concerned about. doesn't mean you do nothing in those zones. It means you proceed with caution. There's already plenty of opportunity for economic activity in other locations around those communities. I think that it is really foolhardy to proceed and put those at risk. Bruce, what have you seen since Walkerton that maybe has changed things to assist with source mapping, where you're looking at where the sources of clean drinking water can come from and making sure that we don't have any contaminants nearby? Well, when we uh, sort of harken back to the inquiry and the work of Justice O'Connor, which was extremely comprehensive, and the government of the day, starting with the former Conservative government and then moving through the Liberal governments, um, was an acceptance of his recommendations. The first barrier is source protection. You know, it, it makes sense to say start with clean water, because if you start with contaminated water, you, you're relying entirely on your ability to filter out what's in there. In some cases, we can't do that. In other cases, it's completely uh, off the, the scale in terms of expense. Or if there's a failure there, and there have been, then we're then directly at risk. So what we've seen, uh, if we look at the, the Walkerton situation, Walkerton and the MOE knew that there was a, a high risk to the site of Well 5 that allowed the contamination in 20 years before the event actually occurred. They did not take action to rezone the land that was presenting that risk, which was agricultural land. Uh, there is no fault there on the agricultural community at all. The well was in the wrong place, but no action was taken. The government proceeded then to go to something that's similar to what they're proposing now, which is voluntary compliance, where they said, we know exactly what we need to do to keep our water safe, but we're not actually going to make you do it. And so what I'm looking at is that by dangling the, the sort of shiny bauble of economic activity and saying, you know, go for it, we're negating a very, very important step that needs to be in place because as you start to peel back protection, you put yourself at greater and greater risk. Bruce Davidson from Concerned Walkerton Citizens joining us on London Live. And Bruce, it's interesting to hear you trace all the way back 20 years where a well was identified and then refresh our memories. What did happen that made that well contaminated? 
Well, what happened was we, we had a well that was right beside agricultural land. The farmer did not even know that the, the well existed there. He did, every, did everything that he should do. The fault was in the original placement of the land or the well, and the fact that on the certificate of approval for the well, it was suggested that you rezone that land out of agricultural production to create a buffer zone. Municipality of Walkerton at the time did not do that. Its Public Utilities Commission did not do that. And the Ministry of Environment didn't do that. So you couple some very poor practices locally, lack of uh, oversight and supervision and regulation provincially. Then you throw in a uh, 50-year rain event that washes contaminants into that vulnerable shaft of the well. And unfortunately, we had a tragedy with seven people passing away, thousands of other people being made ill. And as a uh, basically a liaison between the class action proceeding and the community, as recently as this summer, I was still testifying uh, on behalf of an individual who has suffered two strokes. So, you know, that this is not a tidy little package that just ends with the, the deaths, uh, unfortunately, 18 years ago. Uh, we're still feeling some of those side effects today in a relatively small uh, percentage of our people. But even if you were to use an economic argument... They saved about, at, at the provincial level on the Ministry of Environment, about $40 million in cuts to the ministry prior to the Walkerton tragedy. Walkerton is now over a $200 million disaster. So it doesn't make economic sense. And I, I look at it and say, what risk would a community put itself at if it bypassed the environmental regulations and said, <clears throat> we want these jobs? And then something happened, knowing what we know and having all the information. I mean, we've already paid for the mapping. We've paid for the threat assessments. We are actually in the process now across the province of implementing source protection plans. And those implementations are, are, and negotiations are going really, really well. It is not stifling economic activity. So I would suggest that if it's the uh, sustainable communities we're looking for, the way to go is to proceed in a way where we use all the knowledge we have to make sure that sound decisions are made and we don't have regrets later. Bruce, it's one thing for news stories to cover this, for people like you to talk about this. What needs to happen so that we ensure we don't all of a sudden see a 180 turn away from the way things have been going and the protections being put in place? Well, I think then uh, we're, we're looking at the community level and the uh, various groups and communities that are concerned. I will be speaking in Kitchener in a couple of weeks uh, at a meeting of uh, local NGOs that are very, very concerned about this. But people have the opportunity to contact their MPP and say, look, you know, why are we presenting this all-or-nothing scenario where we're putting people at risk? Uh, the disaster may not happen tomorrow, but if you start to peel back, you know, I could buy a car. <laughs> And if I said, let's skip the airbags and the seatbelts, I'm sure it would be cheaper. Uh, but would, would it be really a wise thing to do? So I think people uh, speaking out and speaking to their local councils, because if the government turns a deaf ear to this and proceeds with this legislation, then it's up to municipalities to say that uh, they're going to go for this or not. And I think that people need to express their concerns and say, look, I don't want you placing my family at this, this level of risk. And then as a municipality, do you really want to be responsible for allowing an activity to go forward that may threaten your water, may lead to a problem where people are harmed or even killed, and uh, then say, oh, we didn't know. Well, you do know. You have the information in hand. We aren't incurring additional expense. Let's speak up. Let's raise our voices 
and let's let the province know that this is an unnecessary choice. We always have that thought when things don't seem to touch us directly that, oh, well, yeah, but that'll, that'll never happen here. Mm-hmm. How much would Walkerton be able to stand and say, you know what, we didn't think it would happen here? We thought our water was fine. We thought everybody had everything covered. No one, no one thought before Walkerton about where their water comes from, by and large, or how it was being protected. We assumed that all those bases were being touched. Now what we see is a situation where we've taken years to analyze the, the disaster. If you had a plane crash and they did an investigation and said, this, this, and this were, were you know, really the, the causes of this uh, terrible accident, and you didn't take steps to implement those changes, that would be seen as ludicrous. To dangle 50 jobs, I mean, as the, the threshold as to whether or not we should uh, protect the environment seems rather crazy. If, if I was to say to my town council, look, I, I'd like to open a marijuana shop and I'm going to create 50 jobs, but I think the high school is the best place to place it, I would be hopefully laughed out of the chamber. When we look at something that we depend on every single day for our very existence and we're ready to trade that off, when that trade doesn't have to be made, there's really uh, no justification for this whatsoever. Bruce, thanks so much for all the work that you do, and thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Take care. Right. That's Bruce Davidson from Concerned Walkerton Citizens. And there are so many stories that you can turn to, and it is always that hindsight being 2020 because right now what's happened since walkerton may 17th 2000 i mean this was before september the 11th may 17th 2000 what was going on well we we didn't have anything really going on before then okay and since then well we had walkerton but we haven't had anything since then so all of a sudden Walkerton becomes trivialized because you can say, well, then then everything's fine because we haven't had any other concerns like that. But as Bruce pointed out a couple of times, we have had source mapping where they look at all of the sources of drinking water. You know, in this community, if I'm right, we get our drinking water mostly from Lake Erie. Right. So, you know, and and there is great filtration. Every place has that. But you do wind up with certain wells in certain places. And as Bruce said, well number five in the Walkerton area had been designated as a potential hazard. And then all of a sudden, cut back here, somebody misses here, somebody doesn't pay attention over there. And you've got a tragedy that kills seven people and changes thousands of lives. We're talking about transplants of organs. We're talking about removal of parts of intestines. We're talking about horrific things you would never wish on anyone. And that's what took place. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We're discussing quickly the flip side of something that seems fantastic. We have a government right now in the Doug Ford government that wants to get rid of red tape, that wants to take a look at every section of itself and say, okay, how can this be done better? 
How can we streamline things instead of cutting frontline workers, which has been a solution of many governments forever? How do we make sure that we're leaving frontline workers in place and yet reducing costs? Because we've seen the ballooning of government for a long, long time. But this is the flip side of that. Bill 66 provides that particular piece of evidence. Because Bill 66, again, is the Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act. And what that is doing is, of course, looking to create jobs, looking to create places where we can have work at the same time. It is also looking at making sure that 12 different ministries are running properly, are running as well as they could be. I'm sure we've got auditors going through all kinds of stuff right now. But in doing so, you can't jeopardize certain things. And right now we're talking about water. We could probably run this through in any number of different directions. This doesn't just pertain to water because we've got 12 ministries involved. But we heard from Bruce Davidson, who maybe spelled out the perfect argument to be very, very careful when doing this. This is not just send an auditor through and look at the dollars and cents. That's not what should be happening here. What you need to do is consider that 20 years before the Walkerton tragedy, things began to go wrong. Corners began to be cut. And in the end, seven people died. And as Bruce introduced the numbers, it, would, it saved the government $40 million. Now, with class action lawsuits, and as he said, he was still testifying in the summer for some of these, we have seen an expenditure of over $200 million. So, yeah, it looks good right now, and it's, it's kind of like, hey, you know what? I could buy this really fast car, and I could get from one place to another much more quickly, but if I get caught, yeah, then I'm, I'm going to have to pay a speeding fine. But if I don't get caught, I'm going to save myself a lot of time. I'm going to save myself a lot of hassle. Yeah, but if I do get caught, I'll have to pay. And that's kind of what's happening here. So this is where you have to be careful in saying, all right, let's just let's cut the excess red tape. You've got to make sure that you're looking at it and seeing actual red tape. If this is green tape, if this is orange tape, you don't want to cut that tape. You want to make sure that everything is still going to run effectively because we don't want an appearance of another Walkerton anywhere else. You don't want to put people through that. Talk to anyone who did go through it. I mean, we had... Stan and Frank Cable at, at kind of the center of this, and Stan went to jail for a year. Uh, Frank was sentenced to nine months of conditional house arrest. Both had worked at the utility, and they were the people ultimately held responsible for this, but things run a whole lot deeper than that. We'll tell you what's coming up in our next hour on London Live when we return. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. When that history involves tragedy, that's dangerous. We'll go from Walkerton to Ottawa. After Jacqueline LaBelle and news, we'll talk with Vision Zero 
on exactly what the Ottawa bus crash from last week should be teaching everybody. This is a tragedy that claimed three lives. We won't know much about the investigation for a little while yet because they're going to do a very thorough investigation. But if you don't know some of the details, we'll describe those and get some thoughts from a group that pays very, very close attention to everything happening in transportation in cities. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. A little later on this hour, we're going to talk about whether you have a responsibility to keep up with technology. Shoes at one time were technology. A hammer at one time was technology. We go thinking of technology now as being something electronic. Not the case. That's not it. It's everything that makes life a little bit easier. Do you have a responsibility to keep up with it? And can you be blamed if, in fact, somebody one day says, yeah, that's not available that way anymore. We've been doing it this way for a long time. We find that a vast majority of people are doing it this way. So now we're doing it this way exclusively. Is that fair? Doesn't always seem to be. But, hey, look what we were just talking about. We've got a government that has made it a point to try and streamline some things, to try and cut through some red tape. That's the kind of stuff that you're going to be looking at doing. That's the kind of stuff where you can save money. If you're saying, yeah, well, we do this three different ways. Can it be done one way? Oh, sure it can. But the people who like it the other two ways are not going to be happy. Yeah, but that would save us from doing it two other ways, right? So that's the kind of stuff that we're faced with. So we'll talk about that in about 30 minutes from now. Uh, There's a crazy, crazy story that if we have first world problems, and first world problems are, oh, my phone is slow. I have so much stuff on it. So slow. That's a first world problem. Well, what would be something that is beyond a first world problem? How about this? We've got a middle school. So what's middle school in the States? Grades 7 to 10, usually somewhere around there. Middle schoolers in the U.S. of Great Neck North Middle School, which is kind of a private school, has these hats that kids are being told they have to wear. It's part of a school uniform. First of all, kids were told they had to buy them. You can't just wear a regular toque to school? Apparently not. The Moclair winter pom-pom hat is exclusive to the school. Well, now school officials have received so many complaints from parents that they've decided to tell kids, hey, stop wearing your hats because we've got kids who are between the ages of 12 and 16. What do they do better than maybe any other age group? You know anybody 12 to 16? They lose stuff. They leave it behind. You give them water bottles. They may come back with the water bottle. They may come back with somebody else's water bottle. They may come back with no water bottle. You never know. It's kind of a roll of the dice. Well, they've been losing these hats. You want to know what these hats cost? They had to buy these. $350. $350. 
for a hat. We're talking about a toque with a pom-pom. What is that worth? Five bucks to make it? Yes, but they are the Montclair winter pom-pom hat. And that's what they're asking them to do is buy these things. Now the school is saying, yeah, we've had enough. We don't want this anymore. Please stop wearing these hats to school. We're having difficulty. Parents are complaining. 350 bucks. That's beyond a first world problem. That is first world plus. I don't understand where we do have coats that sell for $750 and we do have hats that sell for $350. I don't understand where that came from. You know, you put a little logo on the side. Yeah, and now we're going to, this is is able to keep you warm in minus 30 degree temperatures. Okay, so are most coats, actually. Well, you just happen to put that down there. Yes, well, this keeps you even warmer, does it? It's a coat. Most coats do that. They keep you warm. It's kind of your body heat. It's keeping you warm. As long as you're trapping body heat inside, you're going to be fine. You're going to be nice and toasty. It's not a lot to do with the coat, does it? First world plus problem. Let's dive back into something that is a whole lot more real and something that is very, very tragic. And that is what took place in Ottawa late last week, where you had an OC Transpo bus. And OC Transpo is the equivalent of London Transit, LTC. So you had an OC Transpo bus that was pulling into kind of a covered station. It was a double-decker bus, and that covered station was lower than the second level of that bus. And the bus basically saw the second level partially sheared, and there were people sitting on that level of the bus. And three of those people died. And we have had the number rise as high as 23 people were injured. The investigation is not going to play out over a weekend or the next week. This investigation is going to take a very long time. But we wanted to take a look at this particular incident with a group that is very concerned about transportation in any city, and that is Vision Zero. Graham Larkin joins us now from Vision Zero. Graham, thanks for taking the time to be on London Live with us today. Hi, Mike. Nice to be on again. This is obviously not what anyone wants to be talking about, but there have to be things that we consider in all of this. In what you have seen from the early reports, in what you have seen from what has taken place with deaths and injuries, where do you look at this and and put your initial concerns? Well, of course, yeah, it's horrible and it's really raw, and so we're all just being human right now and kind of, you know, reacting to it in the moment. Uh, But I think we also need to step back and uh, see what we can do to, to prevent this, uh, this kind of thing from, from happening again. When you look at preventing this, immediately people have asked the question, why did we have a structure that was lower than the bus in place? I mean, the double-decker buses for OC Transpo have come in after those shelters were, were constructed, were, did they not? Yeah, and as you may know, uh, there was another terrible incident in, uh, I mean, you know, maybe unrelated and maybe not in 2013, but it was a crash of a double-decker bus where it went into a train track and then the train came and just sheared off the front of the bus, and so that was another great great disaster. So it, it definitely raises questions about the, the crashworthiness of these buses. The mayor uh, is now just just came on today to say, 
sort of fairly predictably, Mayor Jim Watson said, uh, it's all good. Uh, you know, these, these double-decker buses are up to standard, uh, but he didn't mention that there are no standards for vehicles of that size, crashworthiness standards. We don't have, uh, they don't even have bumpers. They don't have front impact standards or, or side impact or rollover or crush protection. You don't get any of that stuff that you get in, say, a school bus or, frankly, just a car. And is that something that you have found to be true in other municipalities as well? You've been able to look at you, uh, other places. Yeah, I'm talking. About, I'm talking about federal standards. Oh, really? I'm talking about yeah, 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 federal standards, and and it's a federal problem. I don't think that uh, any municipality should be, you know, expected to uh, basically do a, you know, full investigation. In a way, we can benefit because of the 2013 investigation. Uh, we can benefit from the fact that the Transport Safety Transportation Safety Board of Canada was brought in only because there was a train involved. Okay, their mandate. This is an independent uh, agency, uh, you know, government, but they're not beholden to any other, uh, you know, parties or agencies or anything. And that their sole purpose is to investigate marine pipeline, rail, and, and rail you know, safety problems. And uh, so the only reason they came in in 2013, right, is because there was a train involved. It's not within their mandate. And some of us, uh, a few of us, are now starting to say what should be within their mandate. It should be within the mandate, given the fact that, you know, there's very few pipeline deaths every year, but 2,000 car deaths and 160,000 injuries and, you know, more than 10,000 serious injuries in Canada each year. We need to have, you know, somehow have the Fed step in, whether whether it's the Transportation Safety Board or uh, Transportation, you know, Transport Canada. Graham Larkin with us from Vision Zero as we look at some of the things to consider coming out of a horrific tragedy in Ottawa last week where three people lost their lives and many more were injured after the top of a double-decker bus collided with kind of a bus shelter that was actually lower than the double-decker bus itself. If those authorities were able to come in, how do you feel that would help? Well... You know, the problem, there's a couple of problems with, you know, the, let's say the limitations of municipalities in, in dealing with uh, this, this kind of disaster if it's simply motor vehicles, which is the case right now. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no other federal agency that kind of swoops in and, and does these kind of forensics. One of the problems is that uh, cops have other things to do. Uh, this is, you know, in any uh, municipality, uh, we, it would be kind of ridiculous to expect uh, the police to basically have the expertise, you know, the knowledge to do like a really, really high level forensics that looked at safe systems, looked at all of the, the things. I mean, in this case, you've got your double-decker bus, just as you had in 2013 crash. You've got uh, very cold, icy conditions. I know my son was supposed to be, my 13-year-old supposed to be coming home that day. I'm in Ottawa. Uh, and uh, he, the buses were so delayed, he walked. Well, maybe I'm glad he did. You've got the shelter design. Uh, you've got the speed of the bus on these high-speed transit ways. It's still the safest way to travel. So none of this is to say, oh, buses are unsafe. But it's certainly to say that, uh, you know, for the, for the cops to sort of think about all of those things, it's a lot. They don't have that kind of forensics division, number one. Number two, reason why we can't expect the cops to do this is because, you know, kind of of interest. I mean, there are political interests and economic interests in that people want to look good, OC Transpo and the mayor and the cops, and, you know, I want people to take the bus too. So what we need is to have someone who's, who's objective, right, and really independent. 
Graham Larkin with Vision Zero with us on London Live. In terms of making buses maybe even more safe, like you mentioned, it's not up to federal standards to have certain safety parts of a, a bus, whether it is what were you, you were outlining, roll cages perhaps? Well, you know, I'm not sure, and, I, and I'm not the one to say, you know, what what needs to be addressed. But but as I say, there really are no, I mean, you know, what the solution is, because because that's the purpose of an investigation. But, uh, you know, the Ottawa did not act on, and, you know, and I, you know, for understandable reasons, I guess, suppose in a way, they didn't really act on, on these things that would have made a bus fail safe, because that's the way buses are, you know, the, the buses that are, allowed in Canada are are just designed. And so, you know, maybe we have in this climate, in this, you know, country and everything, maybe we have to have our own standards that will be better than that and that will at least, you know, again, like really science the dickens out of this and like, you know, look at every, uh, you know, what kinds of crashes and collisions and disasters we do have in Canada and say, okay, how can we minimize this? Maybe, as you say, it is a matter of this, this shelter design, which basically, you know, the, the roof of this thing was was just like kind of a blade kind of shearing off the top of this bus. Well, yeah, that might be a good place to start. Uh, but, you know, there's many, many factors here. Well, Graham, we really appreciate your time. Before we let you go, in terms of, of the transit in Ottawa, would these buses, do you know, have dedicated lanes to them? Are we looking at kind of a, a rapid transit setting for them or yeah, are they in regular traffic? Well, it's it's bit of both. It's it's BRT, it is bus rapid transit. In some cases they almost have like their own highways kind of as it were, just, you know, completely nowhere near a car or or a person walking or whatever. Uh and then they come on to just onto regular city streets as well, sometimes with with a dedicated lane and, and sometimes uh not. Um but I would certainly urge again, this is not an Ottawa problem. This is a this is a Canadian problem. Uh, in terms of the both the, you know the transport safety uh, transportation safety board uh, federal agency and uh, transport Canada needing to step in and the last thing I would say if I may is that you know transport Canada they are mandated to regulate road safety but they pay scant attention to it as well they devote three percent of their resources to it and it tends to be uh, you know things that are fairly ineffective like you know telling people how to cross the road campaigns as opposed to more serious stuff. So I would hope, you know, to have the support of Canadians in, uh, in, in establishing some of these standards. And you had hinted, Graham, that some of their attention goes to pipelines and things. I mean, where, where else is it going outside of road safety, air and rail? Okay, so getting back to the Transportation Safety Board, uh, they, they are specifically strictly mandated only to do marine pipeline uh, and rail safety, I think it is. So that's that. Transport Canada, uh, on the other hand, different agency, uh, they do uh, they do do road safety, although as I say, not much of it in real life. Uh, they do air safety. They have lots of campaigns about drones and about how you shouldn't be pointing laser pointers at planes. If you look on their you know their website or their Twitter feed or whatever, you'll see all these campaigns. Uh, they do rail safety, so there's stuff about how to you know basically not get hit by a train kind of thing. Uh, and they do, and they I think they do moraine as well. But the elephant in the room here is the you know 2,000 plus deaths and 160,000 injuries on our roads. So that's where we want them to sort of do their job a lot better. Graham, thanks so much for the time. Okay, uh, anytime. Have a great day. You too. That's Graham Larkin from Vision Zero. As he looks at this particular situation as maybe an opportunity to 
direct some attention to that. The idea that road safety isn't monitored maybe as closely as it should be. That, you know, and I, I don't know where it would go in terms of, of making the changes, whether, you know, whether there isn't much that can be done, whether it is the attention. That's something to certainly look into and, and follow a little bit more. But, you know, you have 2,000 deaths on roadways. You have 160,000 injuries on roadways. And yet by his numbers, 3% of the attention from Transportation Safety Board, Transport Canada, is directed toward roads. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense at all. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up, we are going to be talking about whether or not we all have a responsibility to keep up with technology. Long ago, it was working the remote control, and then the remote just kept getting bigger. Remember the old converters with the TVs that just had all of the different channel numbers? And if you wanted channel 2, you just pushed the 2. And it was like a plastic button that stuck down. And if you wanted channel 13, you pushed the 13. Those didn't last too, too long because then it went to just a remote. And then you had everybody with the, the cool TV that had a remote control that didn't, A, have a wire somehow attached and also a remote control that had just the channel up and down button. Huh? You could just flip right through. And then it was boom, 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 boom. You know what suffered? Professional football. Professional football suffered for a little while. Because you'd watch the game and then, well, there's a lull. Because in professional football, they only actually do things for 11 minutes. That's it. Out of the 60 minutes that drain off the clock, there's about 11 minutes of action. That's it. Sometimes you might get as high as 14. So as soon as professional football had a remote control attached to it, it was, oh, okay, well, let me see what's on this channel. And, uh, oh, it's a, it's a running play. Uh, switch that and go around the horn again. Now there's too many channels to go around the horn. You can't just go. Remember, you could, you could go all the way around. You could go from... You never had channel zero or one, but you go like two, three, four, five, and then you'd come right back around. You can do that in hotels still. Good luck doing that if you have satellite TV or some other cable package. But that was it. You had to keep up with that. That's my point. When VCRs came around, you had to learn how to use VCRs, and you'd learn to timer tape things, and you always missed the last two minutes, and it would be terrible. It would go to snow on the video cassette. It would be horrible. Oh, it's the, they're going to find out who did it on Matlock, and the person responsible for this crime is, and it would be gone. We did that for a while. But do we have a responsibility to keep up with technology? And how closely do we have to keep up? We're going to look back at an app that Devin Peacock was talking about with Craig Needles earlier today on the Craig Needles Show. And then I want to get into that because I really think there is a responsibility. And I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. I'm spoon-fed technology now because I'm able to live with teenagers or reach out and call a teenager. They know exactly what's going on. They know all of the new little tricks. So I have that luxury now. I'm not going to have it forever. In fact, I'm not going to have it much longer. Teenagers move out eventually, don't they? And then they start their own homes and they eventually create their own teenagers. And when that happens, what do you do to try and keep up? 
That's going to be a question that we will ask in about 10 minutes from now. There is, just in case you want to live back in time a little bit while ago, uh, there is a brand new stamp that has been unveiled. If you collect stamps, does anybody still collect stamps? I never did. So I don't, I don't know whether anybody is still doing it. Uh, Canada Post has issued a new Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II stamp. Really? We need another stamp about the Queen? It's amazing to see how clear the picture is, though. I mean, of all the stamps that have ever been created honoring Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, this one probably has the most accurate picture. I'm, I'm actually really impressed. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm, pre- I'm impressed at how clear this stamp is and how good it actually looks. I'm not going out to get one, but I was impressed by the look of it. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. How much responsibility should we all have to keep up with technology? If you have kids, technology is kind of a challenging thing because I firmly believe that you are doing your kids a disservice if they do not have a phone by 12. And I'll let you know why I think that. If they do not have a phone by 12, the way that the majority of kids communicate is by phone or by an app on a phone. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a phone. Maybe it's... Maybe it's an iPod. Maybe it's an iPad. But it has to somehow be connected, and they have to be connected. They have to be able to get into group chats. Has to happen. And please tell me if you believe I am wrong. But I've watched in recent years kids who were not allowed to have that and kids who were. And the ones who were not allowed to have it, the ones whose parents tried to take that strong stand, and I appreciate them for doing it, Because I didn't. I didn't have that strong stand. But the ones that did not have that social media connection, did not have that interaction, it was almost like they were left out of things. And that winds up being sad. Now, at the same time, if you introduce things very early, then all of a sudden you are telling your kids, hey, you need to be stuck on this and you need to care about how many likes you get and you need to care how many shares you get. And that's wrong too. So there is a real two-edged sword in all of this because they need it to communicate, but it can create all kinds of of issues from serious anxiety to exclusion to cyberbullying. In other words, you've got to have them with the tools that they need to communicate, but you also have to be watching very closely. So you don't just give a 12-year-old a phone and say, happy trails, enjoy it, happy birthday, there you go, there's your phone. I'll pay the bill, you just do what you do. You have to know. You have to know what is going on, and it allows you to have, in a way, more control over what your kids are doing because you can know what they are doing. It's difficult for them to hide. Now, at the same time, parents have had issues whereby they will text their kids and those kids will not text back. I don't know what the rule is in those households, but when the kids were young, we paid their phone bills. 
And so if you didn't want to text back or you didn't want to show me what it was you were doing or show me who you were talking to, then I don't think you need to have that phone right now. It was that kind of a case. And we were able to read through text chats, and that was the rule. But at the same time, we're pretty liberal parents. So if my kids are going to come home and say, hey, there were people having sex at that party, I'm not going to say, well, then you're never going to one of those parties again. Because I've always believed you give your children the tools and the education that they need to succeed in life, and then you got to turn them into the world. You got to let them go out there. And all they have are those tools and that education that you've given to them. So you better have done some good teaching. And you better have provided them with some good tools. Because ultimately it's on them. And that's a real tough roll of the dice. But that's what I've always believed you've had to do. Because in order to say, well, then you're not doing that, that's, I, don't, I don't believe that's helping. Or, well, there were drugs at that party? You're not going to go back to a party then, not until you're 18. Well, was your kid doing the drugs? Because if they weren't, it's nice that they can tell you that there were drugs at that party. Or if they decide to do drugs, should you not be able to have a conversation with them about it? You know, you should have had one before in my mind. And here are the effects and here are the things that you're going to encounter. Because it does exist. And if you turn a blind eye to it, you're not helping. You're not helping them deal with anything. Now, that's my little spiel on how I feel about parenting. Please call me on any of it. But the reason I want to talk about this is because a dad has put together an app that if your child does not respond right away, he's a guy named Nick Herbert. He's from the UK. It's called Reply ASAP. And if you don't reply ASAP, it freezes your phone. So I think that's that's kind of a neat thing, because the other thing that I wanted to bring up in this conversation is that if you do have that open relationship with your kids and if they do have a phone, you do know what they're up to. And it's it's not hard to find them at any particular time. And we talked about this this morning with Devin Peacock on the Craig Needle show. The idea that especially kids who, let's say, are 14, 15, 16 years old, even a little older than that, make great use of Snapchat. They do a lot of their talking on Snapchat, which usually means you have to take a picture of something. Sometimes it's the side of your head. Sometimes it's your ear. Sometimes it's actually a good picture. But then they write in a little text and away they go and back and forth. I never understood why it was that Snapchat even became popular in the first place. Maybe the idea that the snaps disappear after you look at them, now, there's the Snapchat still has them, but they disappear from the phone, and it is pretty much impossible to get it back. So maybe that's what it is. But at the same time, Snapchat comes with some other features, like Snap Map. And I've found it incredible to watch the difference between my daughter and my son in the way that their particular generations, even though they're only two years and a bit apart, their generations deal with things. My son and his friends and their friends and ongoing from there, he's the younger one, they're wide open in terms of what they will allow people to see. You want to see where I am on the Snap Map? So the Snap Map basically takes Google Maps, and you can put a little emoji of yourself, and it appears 
on a Google map exactly where you are, which is really unnerving to a lot of people. You think, this is, this is insane. Why would you allow that? Well, you don't have to allow it. You can basically ghost yourself, and then you disappear from the snap map. But if you take a look, and this is what's different, if you look at my older child, there isn't anybody on her snap map. They're all ghosted. They don't let anybody see where they are. But the younger generation, they don't care. They, everybody is wide open. This is where I am. I'm at home. I'm at the store. I'm, this is where I am on Google Maps. And only people who are their friends can see that. But at the same time, they are wide open in terms of what they will allow people to see. So going forward, it's going to be interesting to see how that changes and whether there's a whole new level. But here's the question I want to bring out of all of that, because this technology has existed for a long, long time. Do we have a responsibility to keep up with all of this? Because I can know where my kids are if they're driving my car. I have an app for that that shows where my car is. I can know where at least one of them is because he chooses to allow anybody to know where he is. Do we have that responsibility as we get older to continually learn how to use all of these new things? Is Snapchat, is, you know... Instagram, ah, Facebook, ah, they're just those social media sharing things. But something like SnapMap is a communication thing. Texting. Do we have a responsibility to learn how to do these things and keep up with that? I want to throw that open right now. Phone lines are open. 519-643-2222. Or do you get to a point where you just say, no, I have everything I need. It's like you don't go out and buy a new pair of jeans very often when you get older because you think, well, I already have a pair of jeans. Yeah, but the style's changed. I don't care. I don't care if I'm in style. I like my jeans. I'm going to keep wearing them. 519-643-2222. Let's start the conversation right now with Bob. Bob, how do you feel about all of this? Yeah, Mike, uh, well, my my son's older now. Like, he's going on 29, but, you know, when he was growing up, you know, the phone thing was still in place. You know, it kind of... We didn't have all the bells and whistles we do today with these phones. You can track people when they're driving and all that. But I remember when we got our son the first phone, and uh, it was pretty much because he was getting out and about, you know, and it was more for just contacting us in case emergencies or something. But we got him the phone and said, that's it. We're just getting his phone straight up calls. If you want anything else, all the other bells and whistles that they had at that time, you're going to have to reach in your pocket and get it yourself because I wasn't going to, like, you know, buy all, you know, get all these extras uh, on an account and stuff like that. Sure. So, but, you know, that worked out. It was just really just for, uh, like I say, phone and air for emergencies or something like that if you needed to contact. But, you know, in another sense, too, when, when they're growing up at that age, you know, I think when my son was about 15, 16, you know, I kind of just, we just had a little chat and I said, you're not going to be going out in the world now. You're going to be going to parties. You're going to be seeing a lot of things. Well, I, but I let them know straight up that, I was pretty street smart because when I grew up, I got into a lot of things, and uh, some good and, uh, and some not so good, like any kid. So I just kind of let them know. I know what I know what you're going to do before you do it. I know what's going to happen at parties at this age, and I know the characters that you're going to. Uh, some of the guys are going to be there. Uh, what they're already like, you know, because, you know, uh, you just know. As Types a of people don't change, you're right. Yeah, you know, you know as a parent, uh, some bad actors, and they're going to be around your son at certain situations, or your kids somewhere. 
So I, that's pretty much what I did. I let I just went straight up with them, let them know this is what I did, and it was stupid, and I know it goes on, and uh, you know, I'm going to give you the range, but make uh, make no mistake that I will be I can detect anything, <laughs> anything, if uh, it should be if, if it would be underage drinking or or drugs. Uh, I've been around a lot of that when I was younger, growing up in the '70s, and uh, I was pretty aware of all that. But uh, you know, and then you let them go, and uh, you just instill, uh, you know, the values the best you can. That's all you can do. Now, but, in yeah. in keeping up with your son, have you found that keeping up with technology is a must, or is it something that that you know, if if it happens, it happens; if it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, for him personally, and how he uh, you no know, for you as oh. you as your son has now aged and isn't around to show you, hey, guess what? This works this way. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of, look, I got a flip phone that's like 20, <laughs> 15 something years old, you know, and I have actually the other phone that I have, Mike, was one my son gave to me because he wanted to upgrade his phone. It was an iPhone 4. And he said, you want this thing? And I said, yeah, okay, sure. And I just, I got pay as you go. I, I literally, I used my phone, uh, honestly, Mike, probably maybe it maybe a dozen times a year maybe and uh you know but i just use it when i go out it's on if somebody's got to get a hold of me at sure home and naked. again that's not a bad thing but do yeah. you find that that you're missing out on anything not having that little personal no. computer in your pocket no i don't mike because i come from a different generation right so i i i just i mean call me old-fashioned or what but yeah i i walk around and i, I do see the i get i get the younger generation and what they're into but sometimes I go, I thank myself I'm not, because when I see people face down in, that, in, in those iPhones, everywhere I go, if, I go to, if I'm driving and I go by a bus station, everybody's like just in their own world. And everywhere, I, people walking across crosswalks that I have to haunt the horn on because they're unaware that I'm trying to make a left turn, and they're walking against the light. Uh, that, to me, is overboard, and, and I'm glad I'm not in it, because I still do the things that I always did the way I was brought up. I always, like, uh, you know, I spend my time doing things, learning things. Uh, like, you know, I'm one of these people who always has to be do something around the house and, you know, uh, an upgrade on the house or working on the car, that type of thing. So, I mean, uh, you look, it's to the point now where uh, I have to, to show my son how to change a tire on his car when I think he was 18 or 19. Like, when I was 18 or 19, I was ripping apart motors, <laughs> you know? And, and I, I always made the point, and I said, look, you're going to need to know these skills because you're going to be going down the road sometime, somewhere, maybe in the middle of winter, and you're going to get a flat tire. Yeah, and I think we probably lose sight of all of those things. That maybe, maybe it's not the technology we need to keep up with. Maybe it's allowing younger generations to keep up with all of those things that we need to know. We should start a list of yeah. those things. I mean, changing a tire, yeah, everybody should know how to change a tire. We should probably put together a list of the things that you absolutely need to know and then throw that in front of the 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Yeah, because, you know, I always like, you know, they're getting on in, in their age now, and they're going to be getting houses and stuff like that. And I'm like, uh, well, you know, when you get your house, uh, like if you're fortunate enough to be able to hire somebody for every repair around your house, good for you. <laughs> but if you're not, and you got to find that extra cash, so because that's the way I was brought up. Like, my dad was always 
fixing up stuff around house. So I learned how to lay wood floors, uh, concrete work, like everything. And uh, as I got older and I got, you know, into uh, buying my own places, all the renovations I pretty much, you know, if I couldn't do it myself, I'd call a chum up and, and you know, like I say, a lot of people in my generation. It makes it fun, but no, yeah. no, you're exactly right. Bob, we got to go to break. Thanks right. so much for the call. You betcha. 519-643-2222. Is it our responsibility to keep up with technology? Any changes from the old days of... You know, the 8-track turning into the cassette tape, turning into the CD, turning into streaming. From the going to the movies to bringing the movies home in a VCR to now movies at your fingertips on demand. Is it our responsibility to keep up with technology? Because you do have some things that are available now where? Only online. Is it fair for that? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980cfpl. couple more thoughts before we close out. Do we all have a responsibility to keep up with technology? Donnie says, the answer is yes and no. This is by way of email, Mike at 980cfpl.ca. So Donnie says, the answer is yes and no. If someone invents a flying jetpack, I'm going to want to know how to use that. The latest communication app? Absolutely not. I'd like to know how to use a flying jetpack, too. Why don't we have those? Someone should have done that by now, do you not think? We should all be just zooming around all over the place. Think of the mess that would make. Uh, Steve says uh, there are too many changes. We need a little reverse technology to make our world better. Back to the VCR. I want to record the latest episode of The Bachelor. I don't know if I would ever do that. But I want to, and as soon as they're about to, they give out roses, right? They're about to give out that last rose. The white screen, the fuzz, it hits. Uh, it happened all the time because you would always set the timer, right? And you set the timer to end at 8 o'clock. And if the show ran 15 seconds over, you missed the end of the show. And there was no going back. You couldn't go online. You couldn't really phone a friend. Did you see that show last night? No, I wasn't watching that show. Oh, I need to find someone who... We saw that show. I need to know how it ended. Did you see the show? What show? Ah! You couldn't do it. Now you can just go online and you can at least read what happened. Most wikis are up before, you know, the, the end of 24 hours. We had that happen once. Same sort of thing, even recording now, PVRing. It had stopped and we hadn't allowed for things to carry beyond. I think, I think it was the end of House. And so we were able to go online with... A wiki that immediately said, yeah, well, here's what happened at the end. And we said, oh, oh, okay. All right. On other things, we'll close out the show in just a moment. Beautiful day in downtown London. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. How about a story before we go? You know how we always want weekends to start early? You have to be careful. You have to really be careful that your weekend doesn't start too early. Wichita Falls Police got a call at 9 a.m. on Friday. A woman had been in a Walmart parking lot driving round and round on an electric shopping cart that you can get inside Walmart. This wasn't her own thing. She had somehow driven it away the day before. I don't know. How? How did she have it? She was driving around drinking wine from a Pringles can 
And as people began to arrive to shop at Walmart, she was causing a disturbance. Her weekend had started too early. Wait for 5 o'clock on a Friday. Huh? We are out of time. Thanks to Christian Devino for all of his help today. London Live brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist, Jacqueline LaBelle, Matthew Trevithick. Next with news on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.